The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. In our last couple studies, we have been looking at the subject of Israel, talking about what the Bible has to say about Israel, talking about a little bit about what's going on over in the Middle East right now. This is really an extremely important subject about which I think most Christians are confused. And they're confused because of dispensational and Zionistic theology. This, thought, this theology causes believers great distress when things like this happen. You know, they, there's an outbreak over there in the Middle East... Um, some people are calling this a war. That's a joke, okay? This is no war. you got one side with tanks and planes and another side with rocks and sticks. That's not a war, okay, by any stretch of the imagination. But believers today, they have this idea that whatever happens in modern-day Israel, it's a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And so no matter what happens or who starts it, they line up behind Israel. Our new Speaker of the House, first declaration he makes, we're going to stand with Israel. It's really sad. You know, people say, well, they're an ally. Are they really? I don't know. But believers just feel it's their sacred duty. You know, this is God's people. This is God's land. We've got we to gotta stand behind it. We've got to support it. Please remember what we said in our last two studies. Modern-day Israel are not the people of God. They are not the people that God called out of Egypt. Modern-day Israel does not follow the Mosaic Law. They follow the Talmud. So they are not religious Jews. And as we've seen, they're ethnic Jews. They're Khazarian Jews. Now let me just say this about the modern state of Israel. Israel is the epicenter for the cabal. I think most of you are familiar with that terminology. The cabal, the deep state, the Khazarian mafia. Call it whatever you want. Israel is the epicenter for that. Which means they're the epicenter of evil on God's flat earth. Israel is the main hub for human trafficking, for sex trafficking, and for child sacrifice. They're the main hub in the world. You heard me right. Child sacrifice. And Zionistic Christians are lining up to support this evil. To pray for this evil. To line up behind people. And I'm not talking about the people that live in Israel. I'm talking about their leadership. Okay? Just like in our country, you know, it, we're not the ones behind the evil that's going on around in the world from, that our leaders perform. And, and please keep this in mind. The Kazarian Jews, the Kazarian Mafia, whatever you want to call them, the deep state, they own the media and they own the banks. So they control what you see, what you hear from the media. They control the money supply. So please don't believe anything you hear on the mainstream media. I mean, just, you can't believe any of it. <clears throat> People's Zionism 
is a destructive doctrine because it supports the evil that Israel perpetrates. Um, we're having a video put up in the description on all the videos, Rumble, YouTube, live stream. There'll be a, a video. This video is called, uh, <clears throat> what is it called? Uh, the Mystery of Israel. Have any of you seen this video yet, The Mystery of Israel? It's an hour long. Please take the time to watch it. It's an hour long documentary. It is very good. It is right to the point. It lets you know just how evil Israel is and what's going on over there. And then he ties the scripture in at the end. It's, it's just a great presentation. I was sent this this week from, I think, four different people. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? <laughs> it's an excellent video. It really is. And so please take the time to watch this. It'll help you be informed and know how to pray for what's going on over there. Now, <clears throat> did you notice that last week, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, quoted from the Bible? He doesn't believe the Bible, okay? They believe the Talmud. But he quoted from the Bible. You know why he quoted from the Bible? Because the Zionist Christians love that. And so they all, oh yeah, look at they're quoting from the Bible. He quoted Isaiah 60, verse 18, claiming this is a prophecy that is now being fulfilled. This is what it says. <clears throat> Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Now, he said this promises the Jewish people that Hamas, and he says the word violence here is the biblical Hebrew for Hamas. Okay? So he's saying this is saying that Hamas will no longer be heard in your land. They're going to be wiped out. They're going to be destroyed. And again, he is playing on the Zionistic Christians' emotions. See this? We're stand this is Scripture being fulfilled, people. You've got to be behind us. You know? We got these Palestinians, we got them fenced in a four mile by 25 mile open air prison, and we cut off their electricity, we cut off their water supply, we cut off their power, and we're bombing them. But pray for us. Because the bad Hamas is over there, and, uh, and Hamas, they are bad, but Israel created Hamas, okay? They're, <clears throat> this is all just a deep state thing to get us into World War III. Now this verse in Isaiah has nothing to do with Hamas. Okay? In Revelation 3.9, Yeshua uses verse 15 of Isaiah 60, and He applies it to the church. He talks about the Jews are the synagogue of Satan. We talked about that last week. And then He talks about <clears throat> that this verse applies to the Christians and the church, the true Israel. And it's Old Covenant Israel that is persecuting the church. And Yeshua said the Old Covenant Jews are going to come and bow down before the feet of the church. That's what this is talking about. It's not talking about Hamas. But, you know, Zionists don't care about that. They see a verse and someone told them violence means Hamas, and so they're all on board. <clears throat> Understanding this, let's, let's talk about the land of Israel. What is the promised land in the Bible? In Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. 
So Canaan became known as the promised land. We see that in Deuteronomy 19.8. And Yahweh your God enlarges your territory as He has sworn to your fathers and gives you all the land that He promised to give to your fathers. And so here He says the land that He promised. So that's the promised land. Now, the question we have to ask today, is this plot of dirt in the Middle East a special place to Yahweh? Is this dirt, is this land holy? And by holy, holy simply means set apart. So is this set apart for God? No. No, it was at one time. It is no longer set apart for Him. Dispensationalists and Zionists make much of the land of Israel. They talk about that's just a special place, that's God's place, those are God's people. And then they teach that Israel has to be restored to that land because God promised them that land. And they say these these promises are unconditional, they're forever, we've got to put these people back in the land. Well, we know that's not true, but they'll select verses such as uh, Genesis 15-18 here, it says, On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, we're giving you this land, they say. See, it was given to them, it belongs to them, it's their land. Well, then in Genesis 17-8 it says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, they say, well, that's it. That's, it's an everlasting possession. It, it applies. They, they try to take this promise and apply it to modern-day Jews. To, this, to Christian Zionists, this promise of the land inheritance is permanent, and it's unconditional. Well, Israel, what we have to understand is that God did fulfill His promises to Israel, just as He said he would. And in Joshua 20:45, he says, Not one word of all the good promises that Yahweh had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. So God promised them a certain land. They got that certain land. And several hundred years later, at the height of the earthly kingdom, <clears throat> in the dedication of the temple, Solomon echoed Joshua's declaration here. In 1 Kings 8.56, Solomon says, Blessed be Yahweh, who has given rest to His people Israel, according to all He promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promise, which He spoke by Moses, His servant. Now that really can't get much clearer. The physical land promise made to Abraham was fulfilled. There's no physical land promise yet to be fulfilled. And people will object by saying, yeah, but Genesis 17.8 says that the land was to be an everlasting possession. It does say that. But we have to understand that Israel's inheritance of the land was a type. And this is so important that we understand this. What do we mean when we say it's a type? Well, Bullinger says, Theologically speaking, a type may be defined as a figure or example of something future and more or less prophetic called the anti-type. Wick Brumel has a statement that I think is helpful. He says, a type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history 
by a truth whose full embodiment or antitype is found in the New Testament revelation. The word type here comes from the Greek word tupos, and the word then we also have in the New Testament the Greek word antitupon, which denotes that which corresponds to the type. So we have a type, and which is it fulfills a prophetic picture. So we have type and antitype. The type is the picture, the antitype is the fulfillment or the reality. The type is real. It's an exalted happening in history which was divinely ordained by God to be a prophetic picture of the good things which He promised to bring to fruition in Christ, Yeshua. Let me give you a few examples that I'm sure you're familiar with. In Numbers 21, And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What happens next? God says, oh, you want to complain? You want to grumble? Okay, here's what happens next. All right, Numbers 21, 6 and 7. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people. (laughs) And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Why was God killing the Israelites? Oh, they were complaining. Gogusma, okay? They were murmuring against God. I guess that helps you understand that we really are Israelites, right? <laughs> In the complete sense of the word, we, we, are, we definitely are Israel. But let that sink in. God killed them for complaining. And Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. As a means of salvation for the sinning Israelites, the brazen serpent was a remarkable type of Christ. This is the type, okay? John 3, John says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now this is as even so, okay? So as Moses did that, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, okay? He says he must be lifted up. Now, Yeshua didn't merely here find an apt illustration of his means of saving men by dying on the cross. He presented a divinely ordained type of salvation from death and the punishment for sin by a God-appointed means. What did the Israelites have to do to be saved from the poisonous snake bite? They had to join the church. They had to pray a prayer. They had to get baptized. They had to repent of all wrongdoing and live a holy life. No? You don't see any of those things in the text? Yeah, they got to go knocking door to door and tell other people about the snake bite. Okay? Again, all these crazy things that people want to add to salvation. In order to live, all they had to do was look at the serpent. Because they said, this will heal you. So they had to believe that and therefore look to the serpent. 
The bronze serpent in the wilderness was the salvation, the deliverance of those who believed. Now, by comparing yourself to that serpent, Yeshua was teaching that whoever trusted in Him in His death would receive eternal life. This type very beautifully set forth salvation through faith in Christ alone, who is the anti-type. So the serpent's a type, Christ is the anti-type. Let me ask you this, is the church saved by Christ? Absolutely. But this type was given to Israel. So we see its fulfillment in the church. So in typology, we see the unity of the Scriptures. Many of these types, most of these types are given to Israel, fulfilled in the church. William G. Moorhead writes the following concerning types. A type is a draft or sketch of some well-defined feature of redemption, and therefore it must in some distinct way resemble the antitype i.e. Aaron as high priest, is a rough figure of Christ, the great high priest. And the Day of Atonement in Israel must be a true picture of the atoning work of Christ. A type always prefigures something future. A scriptural type and predictive prophecy are in substance the same, only in form. A type always looks to the future, an element of prediction must necessarily be in it. So a type is really an acted-out prophecy. It's just as much of a prophecy as a spoken prophecy in directing in the faith of the Israelites. Now, a couple of things about type. It must be recognized that types are grounded in real history. The people, places, events which deliberately chosen by God to prepare for the coming Christian system. Now, please get this. There's a graduation from type to anti-type. It goes from the lesser, the type, which is the picture, the shadow, to the reality, the true, the real. It goes from the material to the spiritual. And this is where most Christians miss this. They, they got the material kingdom in the, in the Old Testament, so they're like, yeah, it's still got to be that way. It goes from earthly to heavenly. 1 Corinthians 15.45, thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So you have a natural man, you have a spiritual man. And Paul here is talking about Adam because he calls Adam a type in Romans 5.14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. So Adam's the type, Christ is the anti-type, he's the last Adam. Alright? And then speaking of Adam and Christ, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15.46, But it is not the spiritual that is first. We have to understand that. It's the nat but the natural, and then the spiritual. So that's how type works. It goes from the natural, the physical into the spiritual, to the true meaning, the fulfillment. The type is natural, earthly, material. The antitype is spiritual, heavenly, and the fulfillment of the reality. Now, with that being said, what I want you to understand, and what is critical for us to understand, is that national, ethnic Israel was a type. Understanding this is crucial to understanding Scripture. 
Again, if you don't get it, you're still looking for these physical fulfillments. Dispensationalism. Zionism misses this very important point and thus tries to keep separate the type and the anti-type. They say they're, they're two distinct peoples with two distinct promises, with two distinct futures. That's nonsense. The people of Israel themselves were a type. The nation itself, as God's special people, was typical of the true people of God. It was physical Israel, but Paul describes Christian believers as spiritual Israel. National Israel was divinely ordained to resemble spiritual Israel. And the physical seed of Abraham typified the spiritual seed of Abraham. And some of the promises made to his seed were not fulfilled in the physical, but in the spiritual. And Paul teaches in Romans 4, oh, there was only to his spiritual children were many of these promises. Physical Israel is a type of spiritual Israel. That's constantly set forth by Paul in his letters to the Romans and to the Galatians. And understanding that the nation Israel was a type, we're not going to be surprised to find that the sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple, the land, they're also types, all right? Now, dispensationalism puts great emphasis on a rebuilt temple and a new priesthood because they fail to see those as types. Physical Israel was a type, so was the tabernacle, but they're bent on having this tabernacle rebuilt. We've got to get rid of the mosque first, and then we can have it rebuilt. You know what I love what they'll tell you? They'll tell you the coming of Christ is eminent. How? How is it eminent when there's a mosque on the site? First of all, you've got to get rid of the mosque. That's going to be a big holy war, okay? They're not going to be happy with that. Then you have to rebuild the temple. Then Christ can come and destroy the temple, Okay? <laughs> So how is it eminent? And nobody, it's like they can't get this. The coming is eminent. Nothing needs to happen first. Really? How's he going to destroy a temple that's already destroyed? Hebrews 8.5 says, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. All right, so this is a, serves a copy. It's a shadow. In other words, it's a type, a type of the tent. The tabernacle was a type. The temple was a type. What is the antitype? The antitype is Yeshua. Okay, he is the antitype. That's why he says, destroy this temple. What temple? My body. And in three days I'll raise it up. And they're thinking he's talking about the building there. And he said, no, I'm talking about the temple. The true temple. So Yeshua replaces the temple. Yeshua is the anti-type of the temple. The temple represented the presence of God among His children in the early days. And that is how Christ is described. He came and He dwelt among the people. Not only was the temple a type, and this is important as kind of the focus of this morning, the land was a type. And that's why, you know, people today, well, the land promises, the land, we, they've got to have the land promises, Israel's got to have those. The land promises have been fulfilled. Because the land was a type that represented the presence 
of Yahweh. Now we have to understand that, okay? Yahweh dwells in our presence, Revelation 21, okay? God dwells among us, but that was what the land represented. It was His presence. And when the people of Israel were out of the land, they felt they were away from Yahweh. Okay? They, they, we can't sing, we hung our harps on a tree because we're out of the land. The land was a type, and the anti-typical fulfillment came at the end of the 40-year transition period that lasted from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., when the Old Covenant came to an end and the New Covenant was fully consummated. At that time, the inheritance of the new heavens and new earth arrived where we tabernacle there with God. That's the blessing of the New Covenant. God dwells with us. The unconditional promises were to Abraham and his seed, which was Christ. And again, the land was a type it pictured the presence of Yahweh. Notice Joshua's words to Israel before his death. He says, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. He's just stressing here, God gave you everything He promised. You had it. You got it. But, oh, that's trouble when you got a but there. Okay. But, just as all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the evil things until He has destroyed you from off this good land that Yahweh your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of Yahweh. What covenant is He talking about? The Mosaic Covenant. All right. If you don't keep this covenant, you're getting kicked off the land, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. So if you transgress this covenant, you're, getting, you're losing this land. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he's given you. How come none of these things are brought up when we talk about the land? So has Israel been faithful the whole time, keeping the Mosaic Covenant? Listen, the land was theirs as long as they were faithful to Yahweh. This is the same thing Moses said to them at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy 28 should be familiar ground to you, okay? Blessings and cursings. Look at Deuteronomy 28, 1 and 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, you got to do them all, okay? Then Yahweh your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. And then for 12 verses, from 3 to 14, he talks about all these blessings. And they're beautiful and they're exciting. They describe what Yahweh is going to give to them if they obeyed. But then the tone shifts in verse 15. And in verse 15 he says, But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes that I command you today, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then we have 53 verses. 
I mean, the blessings is, is a short little passage, and then the cursings, 53 verses. And I would encourage you to take time to read through those curses and think of AD 70 and compare what Josephus says about AD 70 to what you see in those curses that are listed there. All right? But let's just look at a couple of the curses in verse 28, 63 and 64. And as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Wow, just God delighted in giving you all this good stuff, but you know what? He's going to delight in punishing you too. And you shall be plucked off the land that you're entering to possess it. So you're going to be just taken off that land. All right? And Yahweh will scatter you among the people from one end of the earth to another and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So let me ask you, people, did Israel transgress the covenant? Absolutely, continually. They disobeyed Yahweh all the time. And Yahweh had warned them over and over. If they disobey, He's going to remove them from His presence. He's going to drive them out of the land. And because of their disobedience, the kingdom of God was taken from them. We looked at those parables in Matthew a couple weeks ago. Now, someone who's familiar with the Bible might ask, well, what about the promise to Israel that God gave them in Amos 9? What about it? Amos 9, 14 and 15. God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine, and they shall make gardens and eat the fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says Yahweh your God. Now, some see this as a prophecy being fulfilled today. And I've heard preachers talking about this verse. See this? God has promised this. But they missed the whole context of this passage, okay? Amos is speaking here to the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos was written just prior to the ten northern tribes being carried off into captivity by Assyria. This happened in 721 B.C. Now you got Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, and Amos. They're all contemporaries. They're all writing at the same time. The ten northern tribes had turned from Yahweh, and Yahweh's about to judge them through Assyria. So the book of Amos is a warning of coming discipline concerning the nation Israel. And in chapter 5, Amos says this, Hear the word that I take over you in Lamentations, O house of Israel, fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So that sounds pretty permanent. But in the next verse, Yahweh promises that there will be a remnant. So He's going to destroy this. It's going to be a purpose. She's going to fall never to rise again. And I believe that is talking about national Israel. All right. Then He says this, For thus says the Lord God, the Lord Yahweh, The city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So this is speaking of the remnant that will be left out of Israel. There, God always has a remnant. Now from a nationalistic view, as the physical people, Israel was to fall and never rise again. But Yahweh said He would save a remnant, and we see this in our text 
in Amos. If you look at verses 7 through 10, you are not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares Yahweh. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphar, and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord Yahweh are upon this sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares Yahweh. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth, and all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Now this verse proclaims the coming disciplinary judgment on Israel, but yet within them there's a bit of hope because he says he's not going to destroy them from off the face of the earth. He says, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. But now in verse 11, there comes a prophecy of hope in light of that. And he says, in that day, so this is the whole context here is dealing with a specific time period. In that day, he says, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and rise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And they may possess the remnant of Edom and the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. So the time period of verse 15, he says, I'm going to plant them on their land. He said in verse 15, and they shall never again be uprooted. Well, that's, this is all the same time period here. Now, this, is, this verse is quoted in the New Testament. Does anybody know where or by who? Acts. Can you narrow it down? <laughs> it's Acts 15, okay? The council at Jerusalem. They're coming to settle, okay, do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to do this? So they get into this big discussion and they're trying to, you know, iron out their theology there. Well, in Acts 15, James draws on this very text from Amos, which he's saying this is happening right now. What you see in Amos, this is what we see going on. That tells me that what we see here in Amos is fulfilled in the New Testament, in the first century. All right? He promises to restore Israel, rebuilding it as the days of old. So this is, Israel is going to be restored, and that's what's going on in this text. And as you study the promises of Gentile salvation through the Hebrew Scriptures, you'll find that they're connected to the restoration of Israel. Many prophecies that speak of Israel's restoration speak also of the promise of Gentile salvation because they go together. Now historically, the tabernacle of David was the tent, the ark of the Yahweh that was supposed to, uh, that was housed later in David's reign. He brought the ark up to Jerusalem. He had it there and that was you know, where worship went. And the ark basically stayed there until Solomon built the temple 40 years later and then it was moved into the temple. But the tabernacle of David is a reference to the Davidic covenant and the promises that Yahweh gave to David that someone from his seed would sit on a throne and rule and reign in the kingdom of Yahweh. David was a king and he had a promise from Yahweh that his throne should be established forever. 1 Chronicles 17, 10 through 14. 
But according to the apparent meaning of the promise, it had long since failed. For it had been many generations since the descendant of David had occupied the throne. It was during this period in which the royal house of David was in ruins that Amos uttered this prophecy that James quotes. And the tabernacle of David spoken by Amos is used as a prophetic symbol of the habitation of Yahweh. And this is James' argument. The salvation of Gentiles, they were seen. Peter was taking the gospel. Gentiles were being saved. The salvation of the Gentiles, he says, agrees with what Amos says. He says, hey, guys, this is what Amos talked about that we're seeing right here in the New Covenant. In the first century, we're seeing this fulfilled. They talked about this, okay? This is it. The Gentiles will seek after Yahweh. So the Gentiles were being saved. So what does that tell us about the tabernacle of David? It was at that time being restored. The Gentiles could not call on Yahweh until the remnant had been brought in. So the Gentiles couldn't be saved until the tabernacle of David was restored. And since Gentiles are being saved, Peter says, James says, the tabernacle of David was being restored at that time. It's not something that's to happen in our future. It's not something that's happening now. It's something that happened in the first century. Amos 9.15, I will plant them on the land. That was fulfilled in the first century. Israel's restoration was not to be physical. It was spiritual. The tabernacle of David, David sitting on the throne. This is all happening now. We see it because the Gentiles are being saved. So who was the promise of Amos 9.11 to in that day? I will raise up the fallen booth of David. Who was it made to? Well, Amos is writing to Israel, to the ten northern tribes. And yet James says it's being fulfilled right now in the church. In Acts 15.16, he says, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and it will be restored. So they're, they're seeing that. The elect of all ages are seen as one people, true Israel, one Savior, and one destiny. The promise of Yahweh made to Old Covenant Israel are fulfilled in the church of Yeshua the Christ, which is the true Israel. Christianity is the fulfillment of these promises because we, in fact, are the true Israel of God. We are the anti-type. Our sacrifices and our house is spiritual. Dispensationalists and Zionists want to return to the physical aspects of the Old Covenant. We believers are in the New Covenant, which is the spiritual kingdom of God. You know, dispensationalism teaches that in the millennium, they go back to sacrifices. What? Christ is here. He's the final sacrifice. But we're going back to, why are we doing that? They point to Christ. They're the type. Christ is the anti-type. You don't go backwards like that. Believers, we have to understand the land was a type and the anti-typical fulfillment came when the inheritance of the new heavens and new earth arrived. When we tabernacle with God. The land was a type. It pictured the presence of Yahweh. Let me try to show you how this kind of fits together through the Scripture. In 2 Kings 5, we have the story of Naaman the leper. You know, he's in his hometown and he hears, hey, there's a, someone in Israel, the slave girl tells him, hey, there's a guy, there's a prophet in Israel, he could heal you. So he says, wow, I'm, I'm going over there. So, you know, he's got leprosy, so he wants to get healed. So he goes to Israel and sees Elijah. All right? 
Well, after Naaman was cleansed, he didn't like the idea. You know, Elisha come out and said, hey, go dip into Jordan seven times. And he goes, don't we have rivers? You know, where I come from, why do I got to go do that? And he didn't want to do it, but someone said, hey, look, come on, why don't you just try it? See, And it works. He comes out and he's not leprous anymore. He dips seven times into Jordan and he goes back to thank Elisha. All right. It says, then he returned to the man of God and all the company and he came and stood before him and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in the earth but in Israel. Whoa, okay. In other words, he's recognizing Yahweh as the one true God. So accept now a present from your servant. But he says, as Yahweh lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha was not on the deep state's payroll. Okay, so no, I don't need any money. I'm doing this in the power of God. All right. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of dirt. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. So he says, okay, give me some dirt to take back. What? What is going on here? Well, Naaman held an opinion that's very common in the ancient world. Particular deities had particular territories, okay? And that, that's biblical people. They had particular territories. And we see this view expressed in 1 Kings 20. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, because the Syrians have said, now this is, he's quoting what the Syrians say here. The Syrians say, Yahweh is a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. See, they believed that particular deities had power over particular places. They were gods of the hills. They were gods of the valleys. In the ancient Near East, gods were generally considered as having defined territorial jurisdiction, just like a political leader would have. Well, this is your area, okay? Now, the jurisdiction could be divided on national lines. It could be divided by rivers, mountains, as we're talking about here. The fact that Israel was a mountainous country and that the capital city, Samaria and Jerusalem, were mountain regions, that fuels the speculation, well, Yahweh, his jurisdiction is mountains. So we can't fight him in the mountains because he's the god of the mountains. So we go to the valley and we'll have no problem, okay? And because the Syrian says Yahweh's the god of the hills, he's not a god of the valleys, they're going to now be defeated in such a way to show that Yahweh's power is everywhere. He's the god of all the earth. All places, all people, all things. Yahweh is the God. Now this view of God's having defined territorial jurisdiction is supported in Deuteronomy 32. It says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, in Genesis 10, we have what's called the Table of Nations. This is the backdrop for Moses' statement here that Yahweh is responsible for the creation and the placement of nations and the gods. Man's disobedience reached its height at Babel. And at Babel, God said, I am done. I'm sick of you people. You won't listen. You won't follow me. I'm just tired of it. And he just basically said, I'm through with you. And he turned all the nations over to lesser gods. 
And he says, here, you rule over these people. I'm sick of them. And then in the next chapter 12, he calls Abraham and starts all over with a new people. All right? So it says he fixed the borders of the people, these certain people, according to the number of sons of God. So different locations had different gods over them. So back to our story of Naaman, all right? Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given your servants two mule loads of earth. I need some dirt. Why did Naaman want dirt? Naaman's request reflects a belief that Israel's territory belonged to Yahweh. While other nations were under the dominion of lesser gods. So Naaman now believes in Yahweh and he wants holy ground. He wants dirt from Israel so he can worship Yahweh while he's not in Israel. He thought that if he took a piece of land back with him to Syria... He could worship Yahweh. He just, I guess he gets back and he dumps the dirt back on the ground. He stands on it and he goes, now I can worship Yahweh because I'm in Yahweh's territory, right? So people here, get this in your mindset. The land represents the presence of Yahweh. They moved out of the land. They got deported. They got taken out. They're, they're away from Yahweh. With that in mind, let's look at what happened in the early church. As the Gospels end, Yeshua has been rejected by the Jewish leaders they put him to death. They killed their Messiah. So now what happens to all the promises made to Israel? Does God stop with Israel and then turn to the church as the dispensationalists teach? See, that they were never supposed to kill their Messiah according to dispensationalism. Oh, that's a mistake. What do we do now? No, that's not what happened. Okay, Physical national Israel was a type that found its fulfillment in Christ. The shadow's gone. The reality's here. Thus the nation of Israel and the Jewish people have no special significance in God's plan or purpose today. It's all about Yeshua and those who trust Him. Believers, we are the true Israel. We are the inheritors of all of God's promises. And the church is the kingdom of God. Now with that said, let's look at Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Wow, wouldn't that be nice? But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles... Now listen, this verse, it makes me sick when people try to use this to, to, to support communism. No, these people are given voluntarily. They're not being, money's not being stolen from them to give to other people. They're voluntarily sharing with those in need. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as who owned lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need." So they're just ministering to one another. We see in this text that the believing Israelites, those who had trusted Christ, were selling their land. And we see the spiritual lesson here. There's people with need, and they're just caring about these people who don't have, and they're doing whatever they can to meet the need. We have to understand the culture here to get more of the picture out of this text. There's an old covenant violation in this verse. Do you know what it is? That's right. The Israelites were not allowed to sell their land. Okay? 
They were not allowed to permanently sell the land because it wasn't theirs. It belonged to God. Leviticus 25, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So the land was not to be sold at all to strangers, but the land could be sold to other Israelites on the basis of the year of Jubilee, because then it would go back to the owner. It was to be sold only to family members. The land belonged to Yahweh, who let Israel use it as long as they were obedient to Him. We've already seen that. As long as you obey, guess what? You get to use the land. But it's not yours. You can't sell it. All right? When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, so as to provoke Him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will utterly destroy it. Okay, people, here's what we have to understand. The land was Yahweh's. He lent it to Israel as long as they lived in obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. That's the qualification here, all right? So listen, even if modern-day Israel were ethnic descendants of Israel, which they are not, they would have no right to the land because they don't follow the Mosaic Covenant. They claim to follow the Talmud, which is some made-up stuff. It's not, you know, it's not God-inspired. And we see the significance of the land in Jeremiah 32. Just prior to the Babylonian captivity, the nation's getting ready to be taken, destroyed, and taken into captivity. Jeremiah 32.7 says, Behold, Hadamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. So, why was Jeremiah to buy land when Judah is about to be destroyed and taken into Babylonian captivity? Why would you tell them to buy land? Jeremiah tells us in verse 14 and 15, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both this sealed of the purchase and the open deed, and put them in earthenware vessels, that they may last for a long time. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in the land. See, Jeremiah was told to buy land because God was going to bring Judah back to the land after the Babylonian captivity. They're coming back to this land, and guess what? Now we, we got the deeds for these things. Now, Acts is a very similar situation. Except this time, instead of Jeremiah prophesying destruction on the nation, Yeshua is prophesying it. All right, Yeshua is saying, this place is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to be wiped out. It's going to happen to this generation. Matthew 24, 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. People, that verse just means what it says. Okay? He's talking to them, this generation, the one they lived in. All these things that are going to take place 
include the destruction of the temple. He says that in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Yahweh left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So guess what the context is? Temple. He leaves the temple. They point out the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things? Do you not? Speaking of the temple, truly I say to you, the people living at that time, there will not be left here one stone left upon another that will not to be thrown down. So the disciples knew that Jerusalem, Judea were going to be destroyed. That's, what's, that's what he's telling them here. They knew the Romans were going to desolate the city and lay it waste. But this had happened before. All right, Jerusalem was desolated in 586 B.C., and the Jews didn't sell their land at that time. They actually bought it. So why sell now? Because in Jeremiah, we find the promise of restoration to the land, but in the New Testament, we don't have that promise. We don't have the promise of Israel ever being promised to return to the land because the type of the land was now fulfilled in the anti-type of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. So same situation. The city's going to be destroyed. He tells Jeremiah, buy land. Christ says, no, there's not going to be a, re a return to this land. Christ is our inheritance, not a piece of land. The land no longer has any spiritual value, so believers were free to sell it. So they're selling their land, which pictured their understanding that the old was passing away, the new covenant was about to be consummated. It's not about dirt anymore, we can sell this stuff. And they're moving on with Christ to the new Jerusalem of the new covenant. In contrast to this, we have Ananias and Sapphira, they're hanging on to the old, and thus they receive judgment. And their judgment pictures the judgment that soon will come upon all those who are hanging on to the earthly Jerusalem. The type of the land has been fulfilled by the Lord Yeshua. Land does not matter at all anymore. Any land, anywhere, it's all God's. And wherever we are, we can worship Him because His presence is with us, not in a certain location, but everywhere. God's kingdom is spiritual. It's not physical. And what happens in Israel today on that plot of dirt over there has nothing at all to do with biblical prophecy. Nothing. Yahweh ended the physical nation of Israel. He ended their law. He ended the Old Covenant in AD 70 when He destroyed the temple and the city. Judaism under the Old Covenant has not been biblically observed since AD 70. It's done. He's finished with that. Today, believers and only believers are the Israel of God. We have inherited all the promises through faith in Christ, who is the true Israel. And the greatest promise to us is given is that God says, I will come and they will be my people and I will dwell with them. We don't have to go somewhere to worship God. We worship Him anywhere we are because He is with us. No more you know. Uh, one location that we have to go to where things have to be done. That's the blessing. And that's why we have to understand the land promises, they were fulfilled, and then the true fulfillment, the anti-type, came when Christ dwelled with His people in the New Covenant. So, people, the video I talked about earlier, The Mystery of Israel, please watch it. Please share it with a dispensational friend that might not be your friend anymore.
but especially someone that you're dispensational, you're not real fond of, send them the video. No, please send it to everybody because if they will just sit down and watch it with an open mind, it could really change things for them. Because like I said, he, he deals with what's happening in Israel now, and then he deals with the and then he goes into the scripture and he explains all this in an hour. So it's, you know, anybody can watch something for an hour, but it's a powerful video that I think will open your eyes to what is going on. You just got to remember this. Israel is the hub of the deep state. Okay? They are, that's a vile place, I'll tell you what, a very vile place. You know, the homosexual movement, the whole thing over there is just blown, they, they blown out of proportion, they're crazy with it, and they're just doing a lot of evil things. Now, so is there any connection with this war? Does this war mean anything? I don't know, maybe. You know, there's a famous Q drop, for those of you who believe anything about Q, that says we're saving Israel for last. Okay, well, guess what? I don't know. If this lasts, does this mean something's coming up? Does this mean something's happening? I don't know. But uh, again, it's a very evil place that needs to be dealt with. And so we'll just have to watch as circumstances unfold and see. But don't, don't try to dig up prophecy, okay? When, when Netanyahu quotes Scripture, just laugh because he doesn't believe anything about it. Okay, he's about as big a pagan as you'll come across, all right? So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your grace to us. Lord, I thank you for the day and age we live in that there's so much information out there. If we're willing to dig, if we're willing to study, we can find the truth. And Lord, I thank you that so many people are turning away from mainstream media and are looking to alternative news sources for the truth of what's happening in our world. Thank you, Lord, for the truth we have from Scripture that never changes, that makes clear to us where we stand here. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Bob. There was the where people looked at the bronze serpent and they were healed from the bite the same Yes. Is, is there any relationship between that and the medical field in the United States today where the serpents are? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I did, I read at one time what that was all about, but I don't, maybe, I don't know. I don't know the connection there, you know. Whatever it was, it's the medical community has definitely lost it. How <laughs> mm, yeah, there's not much healing going on in that community anymore. So, Mike. thinking of the uh, covenants, you've got the Abrahamic covenant, you've got the Mosaic covenant. Um, so, as I understand, maybe you can clarify this for me, uh, the land was attached to the Mosaic covenant, which is conditional. Conditional. The, uh, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, but isn't there's no promise of land there in that covenant. That's a covenant of uh, I will make you a great nation and I, I will be your God kind of thing. Correct. Seems to, so would you say that the Abrahamic covenant is, a, is God's promise to true Israel? Uh, yes, because the promises were made to Abraham and Christ, his seed. That's the promise. God made a promise to Abraham. I will bless all nations through you. That's not to his physical seed. It's the spiritual seed, which is Christ. And Mike brings out a good point. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. Okay? Where was Abraham when God cut the covenant and walked through the pieces? He was knocked out. Okay? When you cut a covenant, both parties walk through the pieces. And they say, may God do this to me, the cut up animals laying on the ground, if I break this covenant. 
Abraham's out of it. He wasn't even part of the covenant. God walked through and said, here's what I'm going to do. That, that is so important that we understand that, okay? Because th that's our faith. We trust. It's not about what we do. It's what about God promised that he would do for us. So how are dispensationalists then saying that the promise of the land is unconditional? Because those verses that said, I'll give it to you forever. And so they take that and say, see, they, again, they, they just chop up the scriptures. Oh, these one, these promises where he threatens cursing, we'll just ignore that. Okay, we'll just take the ones he said forever, and that means forever. So it, what they do with scripture is really sad. But the saddest thing now, and if you watch that video, you'll understand this more. Your heart will be torn if you really know what's going on over there in Gaza, that these evil people are destroying these civilians, these babies, these children in Gaza because they want that land. They want a war. Okay, that's the whole point of this. The deep state makes tons of money with war. Alright? And so, and it's just amazing all our all our politicians clamoring. Anybody that's for the Palestinians, they're a terrorist supporter. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's so ridiculous. You know, and again, I it blows my mind that we can be as evil and support evil. Uh, you know, if you watch that, if you're a Zionist, if you're a dispensational Zionist, and you watch that video, after that video's over, you need to get on your face before God and repent and apologize and beg God to forgive your ignorance about wanting these Palestinians wiped out. Um, I got a question that came in actually early this morning that was... a. Uh, was from last week when someone asked me what my sources were and I guess what they're saying is they wanted to know my news source and he says it appears you get some of your information from the state of the nation I, I don't I don't even know what the state of the nation is but I have a lot of news sources and and then he, the question is this I'm sure there are other sources the question was this he says how do you know you can trust the information you're getting from any of your sources that's a great question because, you know, how do you know? I mean, I, I see all kinds of things and I just like, I, I tend to believe nothing hardly anymore. But I guess I, you want to, first of all, discern what's their agenda in putting this out. In other words, is there money behind it? Is there, you know, because anyone's got an agenda and they're putting something forward. Be really careful what they have to say. But I have a lot of different news sources that I read from and different people that I trust. Some on the ground and you hear from them. And, and, and when you have several people you trust confirm the same thing, then you say, maybe this is actually what's going on over there. Okay? Because we don't know what's going on. We only know what we hear. But I, I mean, there's on this, on this movie, The Mystery of Israel, there's a testimony from uh, an IDF agent saying that what happened, there's no way it happened the way they said it did. Because this wall, this border is so secure. We have so much power. We have sensors in the ground. We know anything that's happening. And yet, you know, all the IDF forces were sent off away from Gaza, okay? Mm -hmm. They were sent up to the West Bank. And so when these... Hamas people came through, there was no one to fight. So it was a slaughter, if it actually happened. Mm -hmm. Okay? But, I mean, again, you know, I, anybody that knows anything about Israel knows you don't just walk in and start killing people in Israel. Okay? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work that way. Okay? They're one of the most technically advanced armies on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And this just all happened, and they had no defense, they had no fight, nothing. And people buy that. We have to, we have to learn to think, people. Because when you're thinking, you're like, ah, this doesn't add up. 
Gary? A clue to your trusting your sources is if it's 180 degrees out from what the mainstream media is saying. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's the thing. Anything the mainstream media says, you got to know is, again, they're owned by the people in Israel. They own everything, okay? Mm -hmm. They own all media. Have you ever seen the videos they put out where everybody on the media is saying the exact same thing, exact yeah. same words? Yeah. Why? Because it's a script. Mm -hmm. You know? And they're telling you what you should think. This is Warren from California. Renewing you, I don't know. I've received the first ones. The stones cry out of Palestine. Oh, okay, I see. This is from last week. The stones cry out, the voice of the Palestinian Christians. You can YouTube great information. Okay, I'm not sure. The persecution of the Palestinians and Christians. Yeah, I mean... Again, any, anybody knows the history of what's going on over there. The Palestinians lived there. They lived there with some people who called themselves Jews. They lived there with you know, others. And everybody got along. They were all just, it was, it was a happy, we all do get along with one another. And then the Israelis came in and said, oh, they, the Balfour said that we can have this land. Get out. And if they didn't, they shot them and killed them. So they just basically just took the land and drove the people out and killed a whole lot of people, many of whom were Christians. May I suggest God's unconditional covenant with Abraham could only be terminated by the death of God? I agree with that. Okay? That's the whole thing. Christ crucified would be definition bringing about complete dissolution. Well, Christ crucified wasn't the death of God because God cannot die. All right, so... Uh, <clears throat> The man Christ Jesus died for us. The man, the God man. All right. So I'm not really sure what you're saying here in the last part of this. You're saying that the covenant was ended because Christ died. God died. I'm not. I'm kind of confused there. Oh, Greg from Arkansas, sitting in a church with earbuds in, listening to your sermon. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Greg, that's like, that is just, <laughs> that is just crazy. I hope he doesn't let out an awkward amen. <laughs> I notice you always ask, how do we get this so wrong today? This fake interpretation of scripture started in the 1800s when the Rothschilds paid Schofield to write the study Bible, which was pushed through the U.S. and seminaries. He, he's right about this. And the, again, the video, The Mystery of Israel, they talk about this. Rothschilds, you know the name Rothschilds. They're at the top of the chain as far as the cabal goes. Okay, They created the state of Israel. I mean, the connection here is just sickening. He said, it's hard to listen to Christians support Israel today and thinking prophecy is being played out when it's obviously this isn't an organic fulfillment of prophecy. I know you asked that it's rhetorical, but doesn't take much to research to find information. It really doesn't. Thank you for giving me a place to learn the Scripture every week in a world where it's hard to find truth. So, ah, bless you, brother. Going to a church in Arkansas, and uh, Bryant, Arkansas, and listening to us at that church. That's Be careful if you yell out amen, okay? You might yell it out at the wrong time. <laughs> Oh, man. 
Amen, David. Thank you. Alas, there is a real land that we've inherited. It's nowhere on this earth. It's in heaven with our great God who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Our inheritance is so much better than a piece of dirt, okay? John Mark from Northern California. Great message and amen to all that you have said. Uh, thank you for your faithfulness and being a beacon of light in these dark and unsettling times. God has certainly blessed your minister. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate your watching and supporting this ministry. Um, David, you're on Instagram. What? Not that I know of. Oh, David, I'm sorry. Are you on Instagram? No. Not that I know of. I have contacts in Gaza, Palestinians, who have sent me videos. Heartbreaking. It's a bloodbath. And I know, and, I, and I've seen some of those videos that have come from out of Palestine. And it just, you know, it makes me weep. It, it breaks my heart. You know, I was cutting my grass yesterday, I guess, and I'm just thinking, you know, I'm out here trying to make my yard look good, and these people are wondering, my, can I find my children under this rumble, rubble here that's this destruction, this mess? You know, and it's not like they can say, okay, this, this place is a mess, let's leave. They can't leave. It's a prison. They're, Israel's shooting fish in a barrel is what they're doing, and they call it a war. And stupid Christians, ignorant Christians are behind them. That's just, that's what's so sad to me, that God's people are supporting this genocide. What was the name of the one-hour video you are talking about? What was this title? The Mystery of Israel. And it, we'll have a link to it on all our videos. Okay, Rumble, YouTube, live stream, there'll be links in there. Click the link, watch the video. I guarantee you, it'll be informative to you. Sandra from California. Hey, Sandra, how are you guys? We listen to good news resource, not Fox News, but they had this week pastors who are dispensational and they promoted this view. Sad for sure. Yeah, they got all the pastors, the dispensational Zionists on TV, pushing their view, just, you know, touting Israel. This is the end of the world. This is, we got to support Israel. We got to stand behind them. That's what's so sad that these pastors are promoting something so, so evil, basically. Just so evil and they're promoting it. Are we done? Yes. Uh, quickly, uh, and this was, I guess, uh, the last time Trump spoke at that Club 45 somewhere in Florida, maybe Palm Beach. And he was, uh, I don't know if you heard about, he was basically slamming Benny because uh, he was supposed to, Israel was supposed to help with Soleimani. Right. And at the end they dropped out and then he took credit for it anyway. I was, uh, I was encouraged to hear Trump say that. So basically, he was slamming Netanyahu, mm -hmm. saying, we can't really trust the Israelites because they were supposed to be in this joint operation with us, and they backed out at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And then he said they tried to take credit for it. So, I mean, to me, to hear him slamming you know, them, was that's a positive thing right. you know, in my mind. Okay, so... Because it seems like everybody in Congress is all right. about Israel, you know, except... He left. Except the left, yeah. <laughs> you know, it just puts right it's, it's, it's rough because it puts you on the wrong side, you know. Am I agreeing with uh, AOC? You know, that's that's a terrible thing. You know, I don't like that feeling. But hey, even a bloke, a broke clock is right twice a day. Okay.